Our scripture reading tonight is from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. text begins at verse 13. We'll read that just the one time. 1 Thessalonians 4. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more and that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. And now the text. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, if you have ever seen someone who is dead, you know the difference between someone who is dead and someone who is asleep. You do not have to take a dead person by the shoulders and shake them to know that they're not going to wake up. The chest no longer rises and falls in breath. There's a stillness to the body. You can tell this person isn't sleeping. They're dead. It's quite striking then when the Word of God says of the Christian who dies, who everybody can see clearly this person has died, that in fact they are sleeping. Interestingly, our English word cemetery, which means the burial place of the dead, actually comes from a Latin word that means a dormitory, which is a place for those who sleep. That tells us that the Christians long ago who named 
the burial yard, a cemetery, we're probably looking at this text, which talks about the dead as those who sleep in Jesus. The wonderful thing about sleep, of course, is that after a while, you do wake up. And in fact, when you do wake up, you wake up refreshed and renewed and restored. And that's the idea behind the Christian doctrine of the resurrection from the dead on the last day. When Jesus comes to raise his people from the dead, he will simply be coming back to awake those who are sleeping. Now, whether they have been sleeping for a thousand years or whether they have been sleeping for five minutes, the important thing is that they sleep in Jesus. And if they sleep in Jesus, then they will awake when he comes to summon them back to life. And that's what I call our attention to this evening, the waking of the dead in Christ. First, we will consider this event that our text describes, an event that has not taken place yet, but which will take place on the last day. And then secondly, the comfort that we derive from the knowledge of this coming event, comfort that applies to us in the here and now, as we have hope in our sorrow, and then finally, the ground on which this comfort rests and our hope for this future event rests, namely the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The waking of the dead in Christ, first the event, second the comfort, finally the ground. So the text views this future event of the waking of the dead in Christ from the point of view of the church that is still living on the earth in the last day. Verse 15 refers to we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. And then verse 17, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Now Paul, who is the divinely inspired author of 1 Thessalonians, includes himself in this by saying we we who are alive, and of course, we know, living 2,000 years or so after Paul wrote these words, that Paul is long dead. So Paul will not personally be among those who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord, but since Paul was alive at the time that he wrote these words, and since Paul did not know the exact day or hour when the Lord would return, he says, we, but his point isn't personal, his point is about the church, the we, that will still be alive here, militant on the earth on the last day. That's not going to be the Apostle Paul anymore at this point, but it might be you. It might be you young people. It might be you children. Those Christians who are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord will have witnessed some awful things in their lifetime. Those who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord will have heard of wars and rumors of wars. They will have experienced famines and pestilences in the earth, and they will have known of all kinds of troubles that have fallen upon mankind. Those who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will have heard the messages of false prophets and of false Christs who will arise along with their lying wonders that will deceive many. Those who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will have witnessed the rise of the Antichrist and will have seen the whole world brought under his seducing power. They will have witnessed the blood of the martyrs that were shed for the sake of Jesus. Those who are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord themselves will likely by that point be a haunted minority, a few scattering of God's people that is left over after the systematic persecution of the church that is known as the Great Tribulation. When you recall that in Noah's day, which is parallel to the last days, but when you recall that in Noah's day there were only eight souls who remained. 
then you get some idea of just how few those who are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord might actually be. So don't imagine that it will be a walk in the park for those who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. Children might get the idea that it would be a great thing to be among those Christians who are alive, who are still alive when Christ returns because then they won't ever have to die. And that's true. Physically, these ones will never die. However, they will pass through the deepest and the darkest part of the valley of the shadow of death. They will live right under the nose of the Antichrist himself. They will be hated. They will be dismissed and marginalized. They will be cast aside and rejected as the lowest of humanity. They will see many of their brothers and sisters in the church put to death as martyrs. Or perhaps even worse than that, they will witness those who were brothers and sisters or who they thought were brothers and sisters leaving in the great falling away, the apostasy, to become enemies. So yes, those who are alive and remain of the coming of the Lord will not physically die, but they, more than any other Christian who has ever lived, will understand what Jesus meant when he said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And yet, I said that might be you, you young people, you children. This will be the incentive to press on if that is you. That you will have the privilege, the glorious, wonderful privilege of witnessing firsthand the amazing climactic work of God bringing all of his redemptive works to its close. For there will come a day when we who are alive and remain on the earth will hear a shout according to verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. Now think about that and try to imagine that from the perspective of somebody who is here, a Christian who has endured all of those things and is here and is alive and remains unto this day. They will hear a shout, and it will be a shout unlike any other shout you've ever heard. This will be a shout that reverberates throughout the entire creation. There's not a single ear in the earth that will fail to hear the sound of this shout. This will be a shout that makes the stars fall from heaven, as it were. This will be a shout that makes the moon turn to blood. This will be a shout that breaks down the laws of physics, rends the heavens like a garment. A shout! And accompanying this great shout will be the voice of the archangel. Archangel just means the chief angel, the greatest of the angels or the head of the angels. That's probably Michael, since he's the only one in Scripture who is given that title. Maybe there's other archangels, but Michael seems to be the chief of the angels, the captain of the army of heaven. So along with the great shout, there will be the sound of the voice of the archangel. And no doubt with the voice of the archangel, there will be the, vo- the voice of the whole heavenly host, myriads and myriads, thousands upon thousands of angels, crying out in answer to the cry of the archangel. And also there will be the sound of the trump of God, according to verse 16. And when you hear that word trump, Don't think so much of a brass cornet with three valves like we're used to hearing in a marching band, but think of the the kind of trumpet that would have been used in the Middle East, maybe is still used today in the Middle East, that 
that's made out of a ram's horn. It's called the shofar. And it gives a pretty clear and distinct note that was used by God's people in the Old Testament as a battle call. It's the kind of trumpet that Gideon and his 300 soldiers blew before they rushed into battle against the Midianites. But here the trump of God or the shofar of God is less about calling to battle and more about announcing the victory of a battle that has been won. If it's exhilarating to rush into battle with the sound of the trumpet urging you on, how much more wonderful is the sound of the trumpet that announces the battle is over. We have won. Lay down your arms. It's time to celebrate. There will be the voice of the archangel along with the shout of the heavenly hosts. There will be the sound of the trump of God. But neither the voice of the archangel nor the trump of God will drown out the clear sound of that initial shout. For that shout comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's what verse 16 says. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. And the idea is, it's the Lord's shout. It's the shout of Jesus, the risen, triumphant, glorified Christ who ascended into heaven, was seated at the right hand of God, but now returns. And as he returns, he shouts. And that shout of the Lord is the focus here because it's a shout that comes out of his mouth with a purpose. It's the shout of command. It's the shout of one who has authority. This is the captain shouting out orders to his soldiers, orders that he shouts out loud enough for them to hear even over the din of battle. Now when you hear a great noise like that, you want to know where it came from. If you're busy doing something and all of a sudden there's a great noise, you look up. Where's that coming from? So those who are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord will look for the source of this great shout that comes along with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and that's going to make them look up. Because that's where the sound's coming from, up. And when they look up, they will see the Lord coming bodily and visibly. His coming in verse 15 is his appearing. We which are alive and remain unto the coming or the appearing of the Lord or in the Greek the parousia if you've heard that word before. He will come. He will come down from heaven. He will descend just like he went up in the clouds and the apostles looked and they, they were watching in the heavens. They saw him go in the same way he will return, the angels told them, in the clouds of glory, descending down from the heavens. And as a result of that appearing, that parousia, he will be seen visibly in the flesh. This is not going to be an invisible and secret return of Christ as the dispensationalist doctrine of the secret rapture teaches. No, this will be a very public, very visible return of the Lord. What those who are alive and remain will see, and the wicked will see it as well, and the Antichrist will see it, and those who pierced the Lord will see it. What they will see is the glorified man, Jesus Christ, coming down from heaven to meet them on the earth, and accompanying him, and behind him will be ten thousands of his saints. Jude speaks of this 
In his epistle in verse 14, he says that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. He cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Not just the angels, but his saints, those who lived and died on earth, and now they dwell with the Lord in the intermediate state in their souls. But the saints, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, David, Peter, Paul, our fathers, our mothers, our grandfathers, our grandmothers, our children perhaps who have been taken from us in an untimely death, who sleep in Jesus at this time, God will bring them with him at the return of Christ, according to verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. And there are different interpretations of what that means. But what I believe it means is the souls of the departed saints. The Lord will take those with him when he returns so that he is accompanied by 10,000s of his saints in his return. Those who sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. And those who are alive and who remain under the coming of the Lord will see all of this take place from the vantage point of the earth. Think about that. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if you're still here? If you're still in the battle and you hear that shout and that battle call from the trumpet and the voice of the archangel, stop whatever it is that you're doing. Are you hiding somewhere in a cave because you belong to the persecuted church and you fear for your life? Are you in some dungeon somewhere being held against your will by anti-Christian powers? Are you about to be given in martyrdom for your faith to the cheers of the ungodly world? Are you just busy with the concerns of ordinary life? Are you in a field somewhere working with your hands? None of that matters anymore. Stop. Look up. He's coming. He's coming. And then the best part. That shout of command from the returning Jesus will have an effect on the bodies of those who sleep in Jesus. That shout is a shout of awakening. The text doesn't tell us what the shout will say. But in light of the context, I believe this is what that shout is going to say. Wake up! Wake up! The time of sleeping is over. It's the time of wakefulness now. Wakefulness in heart, mind, and soul, and in body. Wake up, you sleepers in the dust. And think of that as a personal call. I know the resurrection from the dead is a general resurrection from the dead. The bodies of many saints who have lived and died over the course of thousands of years will be risen from the dead. Nevertheless, think of it as a personal and as an individual call. Shout from the Lord. Just as Jesus once stood by the tomb of Lazarus and called to the dead man by name, Lazarus, come forth. So the Lord will call his sleeping saints by their names. Agatha, wake up. Jerry, my son, 
Arise. Nathan, it's time to wake up. Or maybe there will be a new name that the Lord gives us. A name that describes us better than that name that our parents gave us when we were born. A name to which we will answer for all eternity. A beautiful name personally given to us by our Father. Nevertheless, the Lord will address us personally. My son, my daughter, you for whom I lived and suffered and died and rose again, now it's your time. Wake up! And the dead in Christ will obey. Those souls whom the Lord brings with them, with him on his return, will find those dusty old skeletons wherever they are buried in the earth. And bone will return to bone. And skin and sinew will be weaved together again to form living and new flesh. Bodies will rise out of the sea. The pieces of the bodies that have been burned and scattered to the winds will be painstakingly gathered back together and the dead in Christ shall rise. They shall rise first. And rising back to life, they will ascend to meet the Lord in the air, body and soul now together, reunited in the resurrection. We who are alive and remain will witness this. Can you imagine that? After all the pain and heartbreak of seeing these very saints killed and cast out by the wicked, ungodly world. After shedding all those tears by the gravesides of loved ones who have been lost through old age or through sickness or through troubles or accidents, now to see them rising, rising back to life and rising better than they ever were before, glorified, and rising up to meet the Lord who's coming down to meet them in the air. If you're ever tempted to despair because we look at the world around us and we see how, how wicked it's becoming and how, what a scary place it is for believers to live in, if you're ever tempted to become despairing, Think about that moment. Think about what a wonderful, glorious moment it would be to be alive and to remain at, at that time, to see these things happening. But that's not quite the end of this event. Then we who are alive and remain ourselves will be caught up together with them in the clouds. The Lord will not leave us here on the earth to perish along with the wicked. The Lord will not forget us or the sorrows that we have borne. He will reach down and he will catch us up to himself, according to verse 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's the true rapture, beloved. That's the true rapture. It's not an invisible secret event that comes suddenly and without warning so that a car that's driving down the road suddenly doesn't have a driver or an airplane that's flying suddenly doesn't have a pilot. That's the view popularized in the left behind books that is really the teaching of dispensationalism, but that's, that's false doctrine. The Bible doesn't teach that. But there will be a rapture. The Lord publicly, visibly, will catch up his own people to meet him in the air And he will embrace them with the arms of everlasting love. And in that moment, we shall all be changed. Without ever having slept the sleep of physical death, our bodies, if we are those who are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord, will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. 
And we'll be fit to stand in the presence of the risen and glorified Savior and to participate in the great celebration with all the glorified saints. And that then, beloved, will be the entry point into everlasting glory. Only with our eyes will we see the destruction that the Lord brings upon the wicked and ungodly world, a destruction which will be complete. Fire and intense heat will melt the elements back to nothing, to ashes. But then from the ashes will all things be made new. And then we will come down from the clouds to enjoy life everlasting in that perfect kingdom that the Lord will make and establish wherein righteousness dwells. And so, according to verse 17, shall we ever be with the Lord. That's the future event. And it is an event. An event speaks of something that's going to happen. And this will happen. This will happen as certainly as any event that's happened in the past. We'll see why that is in a moment, but first, we'll see how this comforts us, how this brings great comfort. First of all, it brings great comfort for us who are here on earth as we think about those who sleep in Jesus or fellow believers who die. That's the big concern that Paul had when he wrote these things to the Thessalonian Christians. Paul's big concern when he wrote of this future event had to do with the misunderstanding that the Christians in the Thessalonian church had about their fellow Christians who were dying. There was an expectation in the church of Thessalonica, first of all, that Jesus was going to be coming soon. And when I say the church in Thessalonica believed that Jesus was coming soon, I mean very soon, as in they thought he was coming tomorrow, maybe, or maybe a week from now, or maybe a month from now. But certainly in my lifetime, certainly something we can measure in terms of years. If you read the books of First and Second Thessalonians, you'll discover that Paul addresses this idea that the Thessalonians had of the immediate return of Christ, he addresses that more thoroughly in 2 Thessalonians. He says in 2 Thessalonians 2, that you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled as that the day of Christ is at hand. You see, the members of the Thessalonian church were saying, well, Jesus is going to come maybe tomorrow or maybe next week or maybe a month from now, and therefore, what's the point of working? What's the point of doing anything? We should just sort of sit around and wait until the Lord returns. And then they were getting into all kinds of trouble. They're becoming busybodies in other men's affairs. And so, in Second Thessalonians, Paul goes on to clarify, no, there's certain things that have to happen before Jesus will return, there are signs that you need to watch for. And preeminent among those signs is the rise of the Antichrist, the man of sin. And there's going to be a time of waiting before those signs unfold. And so a Christian shouldn't give up his job. A Christian shouldn't, shouldn't stop working and spending his time sitting around all, waiting for Christ to show up tomorrow. No, he should be busy and watch for the signs. But, but that was the, the prevailing expectation. Jesus is coming soon. And that was making the Christians in the church then very troubled when some of their fellow Christians were dying. Some of their fellow Christians may have been killed because of persecution. We know that Thessalonica was a place where the Apostle Paul met pretty stiff opposition from the Jews. It was not a friendly environment, therefore, for the small Christian church that had been established there. But whether they were dying from persecution or from what we would call natural causes, doesn't matter. What the Thessalonian Christians were thinking was this. These brothers and sisters who are dying are going to miss out on the coming of Christ. 
They're going to miss out. And this discouraging thought was then affecting the way that they were mourning for their dead. They were sorrowing as those who have no hope. And Paul sees this as a big problem. Now, we should notice the problem is not that the Thessalonians are mourning the deaths of their loved ones. Of course they mourn and they have sorrow when their brothers and sisters in the church die. Death is a terrible thing. As we saw this morning, Jesus wept by the graveside of Lazarus. And he, he wept even though he knew that in a, a few moments he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Sorrow and grief is natural and proper when confronted with death. The problem with the Thessalonian Christians is not that they had sorrow. The problem is that they sorrowed as those who have no hope, according to verse 13. I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. As Paul looked at the Christians in Thessalonica and saw them mourning their dead, he saw no discernible difference between the way they were mourning their dead and the way the pagans and unbelievers mourned their dead at their funerals. What the pagans and unbelievers believed about their dead is that when their dead died, they went into some dark underworld and were lost forever. They sorrowed as those who had no hope, and it was very evident in the way that they mourned with all of their weeping and wailing but that's what the Thessalonians were doing. They may have been despairing even more so than the pagans and the unbelievers because they imagined that these brothers and sisters did have hope at one time and then they died and that hope was taken away from them. It's with this in mind that Paul corrects the Thessalonians in their misconceptions about those who sleep in Jesus. And he does that straight away, notice, by talking about these individuals not as dead, but as sleeping. Sleeping. I would not have you to be ignorant concerning them which are asleep. Sleeping means that there's going to be awakening. But Paul's saying the gospel has something to say about them. And the return of Christ has something meaningful for these brothers and sisters who are dying. They're not dying without hope. Christ is coming again to wake them back from their sleep and to raise them from the dead. That's the purpose of his return. In fact, we who are alive and remain will not even prevent those who are sleeping in Jesus. In other words, those who sleep in Jesus are going to be going first. They will be the first ones to taste that hope. Sorrow not as, as if you have no hope, but sorrow in hope. And that has something to say to us, beloved, as we look at death. Now, it's true that this hope only applies to those who sleep in Jesus. There is a different kind of sorrow that comes when someone we know dies without knowing the Lord. That's a, that's a dreadful sorrow. That's the kind of sorrow that David had when his son Absalom died. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. What do you say? How do you comfort the Christian father or mother whose son or daughter perishes outside of Christ? Look to God and confess that He is good in all of His ways and that even this awful reality has a purpose in Him and let the thought of those who perish outside of Christ bring urgency to our prayers when we consider 
that we have perhaps a brother or a relative who is backsliding or who is walking away from the Lord, pray for them. Pray for them in love for their souls. And let that thought of what happens to those who perish outside of Christ motivate us to speak to our neighbors and to be a good witness. Only those who sleep in Jesus will be awaked by him on the to the resurrection of life on the last day. But for our brothers and sisters who die in Christ, we have great hope for them. There's sorrow. Sorrow that I will no longer be able to talk to this person whom I love. Sorrow at the finality of the grave. But sorrow not as those who have no hope. They're not missing out on anything. We're the ones who are missing out, as it were, until we get there. But they're with Him. They're with the Lord. In His presence, His very presence. And they will ever be with Him. And if you are one of those who are alive and who remain at the coming of the Lord... You will see them bloom in the resurrection on the last day. What a glorious thing that will be. Comfort one another with these words. But it's not just comfort with respect to those who sleep in Jesus. But notice how what the apostle teaches here also gives cause for comfort to those who are alive and who remain unto the coming of the Lord. I think living in the time and place that we do, it's a bit challenging to think hopefully about the future. Maybe we look at the enthusiasm of Thessalonica for the end of the world almost as a bit naive. Don't you people know what's going to happen at the end? Don't you know how awful it's going to be? Don't you know what the Antichrist is going to do to the world? The man of sin will be revealed. Satan will have power over the whole world. You want to be there? You want to be there at the end? I think I'd rather just go to sleep and wake up when it's all over. It's challenging to think hopefully about the future. And maybe we've become accustomed to a rather easy Christianity. Maybe we have. It's been pretty easy to have God and mammon in our world. And that makes it frightening to look into the future as we watch changes in our society unfolding. And it stings a little bit when men speak evil of us because of our Christianity and because of what we believe. Well, the Bible says that before the end comes, it's going to get worse. It's going to get far worse. It's going to get so bad that everything around you, all of your senses are going to be telling you to give up. Why should I endure? Why should I press on in the name of Christ when to do so is only to meet with more opposition, more rejection, more hatred? Why not just deny him? Why not just give in? Why not just enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season? It would be much easier Why not throw the yoke of the cross off my back and go back into the camp rather than suffering outside? Why? Because the Word of God says it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Now there will be suffering for God's people in the last days. I don't think we can even begin to imagine it. And maybe it's not even worthwhile to try because then we just get scared. There will be great tribulation. The Bible says that. But it will be worth it. It will be worth it if only for this reason. To still be alive 
and to still be remaining on the face of the earth and to see the look on the face of the man of sin when the sound of that shout is heard and the sound of that trumpet comes piercing from the heavens and he knows that his days have been numbered and the end has come for him. Can you imagine that, beloved? Can you imagine being there, seeing those things? If you are among those who are alive and who remain, who have persevered through all of those trials, the memory of that moment will be etched indelibly in your mind for all of eternity. It will be the greatest moment of your life. And it will fuel the eternal delight in the Lord that will be yours. But as far as the gospel is concerned, it's a win-win, isn't it? There's no loss for those who sleep in Jesus. They're going to see him too. He's going to wake them up. And they'll rise to meet him in the air. But also the sufferings of those who alive and remain will be rewarded as they are here to bear witness to the climax of the glory of the Lord and his return. Beloved, sorrow perhaps, grieve perhaps, but not as those who have no hope. You have hope, an amazing hope. Comfort one another with these words. The ground of this comfort is that it rests upon the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's verse 14. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now the importance of having a ground is that the coming again of Jesus with all that it entails might seem like too much to hope for. There is something so final about the grave, isn't there? That dead body is still and cold. All of our senses tell us that body is not going to live again. It cannot live again. And the world tells us that we're ridiculous if we believe that any body is ever going to live again. Bodies don't come out of the grave. Bodies that have been disintegrated in, into ashes and the flames don't come back together. That's absurd. So it might seem like too good to be true. And then there's the promise of the return of Jesus. And that might sound like it's too good to be true. Really? A shout that the whole world's going to hear? How's that going to happen? 10,000 angels pouring into the heavens? A new heaven and a new earth being created where there's no more pain, no more death, no more sin? Those things are just part of life. How's that going to happen? That's, isn't that just a bit idealistic? And it's going to seem all the more idealistic and all the more too good to be true if we're living just before the end when the Antichrist is sitting on his throne and the world has been brought together through his power and through his influence. That's the sure thing. That's the thing that we should believe in, they will say. So we need to have a ground for our hope, a sure ground. And it has to be more sure than just that we really, 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 really want this to happen. It has to be based in reality, in facts, in history. But that's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is. It's history. It's reality. It's fact. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. The assumption is, you're Christians. You believe that Jesus rose from the dead, do you not? Of course you do. The death and resurrection of Jesus is, is central to what it means to be a Christian. Well, he didn't die and rise again so that everybody he died and rose again for could just stay buried in the ground, dead. No, he died to pay for our sins. He died so that death would have no more hold over us. And he rose again for our justification to prove that we have the right to life through his name. Do you believe that Jesus rose again from the dead? 
Do you believe that he came out of that tomb? Well, then you must also believe that those who sleep in Jesus will rise again from the dead. For the one implies and is the sure basis and ground for the other. It tells us something about how important Jesus' resurrection is, isn't it? You cannot be a Christian if you deny the resurrection of Christ. Anybody who says that they are a Christian but says the resurrection is impossible is a liar. I'm not a Christian. Christian believes in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That also tells us something about how we will hold on to hope when faced with the bleakness of the grave or when sitting in a prison cell in the last days facing persecution. How are we going to hold on to hope? How are we going to know that these things that the Bible tells us about aren't just too good to be true and aren't just idealistic? Well, it's not just by looking at our circumstances. It's not just by having a positive attitude. If you want to hold on to hope for the future, then you have to look to the past. You have to look at Christ, what he did, how he died. He really died. A spear ran through his side, and the blood ran out. He was buried, but he rose again. He died, but he rose again. And if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then we must also believe that he's coming once more in the future. And there's going to be that shout. There's going to be that voice of the archangel. There's going to be that trumpet call. Wake up! Wake up, you who sleep in Jesus! Wake up, my son. Wake up, my daughter. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for this rich hope that we have, a hope that is grounded in history and in truth. And we pray that thou wilt embed in our minds and in our consciousness the resurrection of Christ, the beauty of that reality, and that as we cling to that truth, we will have hope for the future, for our own resurrection and the resurrection of our brothers and sisters who sleep in Jesus. We pray, O oh Father, bless us now as we conclude this worship service. And when we walk out of this building this evening, we pray that we may go as those who have been refreshed and restored, and as those who have been with thee, our God, and that we will go into this life then, our labors tomorrow and on Tuesday and in the days to come, with a hopefulness, with a joy, and with a readiness to face whatever thou dost send our way. Forgive our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.